This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hey, everybody. I hope everyone is ready for spring. I know I sure am. So let's get down to business. We've got a lot to cover in today's show. Today, we'll talk about avoiding the pitfalls that come with that first visit to the garden center come springtime. We'll be talking about what nesting materials are safe for birds. And finally, we'll talk with Dr. Daniel Clem, a world-renowned ornithologist, about the important findings in his brand new book about bird collisions. I know we've touched on this subject very recently, but Dr. Clem is advocating some new techniques, and I want to make sure you know about them in time for this spring's migration. And now let's talk a moment about that first trip to the garden center come springtime. Spring has arrived and you've lost all control. You hop in your car and make a beeline for the nearest garden center. It's like you are being dragged there by a giant tractor beam. You can feel that surge of joyful adrenaline when you drive into the parking lot and see table after table of colorful plants sitting in the sun, beckoning you. There aren't many gardeners who can resist the hypnotic allure of seeing all of those tables filled with cheerful and bright red, blue, pink, yellow, and white blooms. It's like they are calling your name. Then you notice Miracle of Miracles. They have native plants for sale. Not just cultivars or nativars, but native, the real deal. You race from table to table, gleefully filling your basket with all of those flowers you dreamt about while staring at those catalogs over the winter. You are positively giddy now, and you wheel out of the register area with a smile of satisfaction and fill the trunk of your car with all of your purchases. But now you're at home and you're staring down into the trunk at your new collection of plants, and you can feel a little bit of panic setting in. Stop. Take a deep breath. I get it. We have all been there because we all know that the plastic stick stuck in the pot with the plant that says sun or shade just isn't going to cut it. It's not exactly all the information you need to successfully raise the plant and ensure its survival. It's important to keep in mind there are several different types of sun as well as shade. Let's talk about these for a moment. When a plant requires full sun, we are talking about a full day of sunlight, which is considered to be at least six hours or more a day. Many sun-loving plants thrive under a full day of afternoon sun, so for those full-day sun lovers, you will want to avoid planting them near structures like buildings or stone walls, which cast a long shadow for a good part of the day. If you live in the northern hemisphere, the south side of your house is likely to be much hotter and sunnier than the north side. Why is that? As the sun travels east to west over your house, it causes the house to cast a big shadow, creating deep shade on the north side. This is usually a good spot for those deep shade-loving plants. Now, what about those plants that can't handle the intense heat and glare of afternoon sun, but still prefer to grow in the sunlight? Place them in an area that gets only morning sun, which is much less intense. 
All of this, of course, will require some investigating in your yard, and perhaps even some relaxing on a lounge chair with a glass of iced tea with lemon, while you time the sun's trajectory in various locations. Now let's get into what partial sun means. When a gardener talks about partial sun, typically they mean four to six hours of sun per day. The afternoon sun on that south side of the house can wither plants that need only partial sun. So try to position your plants so they get morning sun instead, which is a lot gentler. Now let's talk about partial shade. Partial shade plants are sensitive to sunlight and can be easily overwhelmed. Try not to give these plants more than two to four hours of sun per day. Many of these plants definitely benefit from being placed in an area that gets only morning sun. Plants that require dappled sun need a spot under trees or bushes where the sunlight is forced to penetrate through branches and leaves, lessening its ability to dehydrate the plant. And finally, let's talk about full shade. Full shade doesn't mean absolutely no sun. Even plants in deeply shaded forests will still get some filtered sun each day. But you don't want them getting more than two to three hours per day, and preferably you want them getting morning sun. Finally, there is late evening sun, which is much less intense and may be ideal for those plants that cannot handle direct midday sun. It's about heat, it's about light, and it's about the intensity of both heat and light. Not giving a plant the light and heat it needs may mean you don't get any blooms. Giving them too much can cause them to wither and die, even with supplemental watering. Keep in mind that things in the garden change over the course of the growing season. That sun-loving native you planted under a cherry tree in early spring is going to be struggling to get enough sun once the cherry tree leafs out and creates a shady area. Be flexible. If you notice a plant like a fern, which needs deep shade, sitting in shafts of intense light for extended periods during the day, move it to a shadier and cooler spot. Knowing your yard and your garden is the key to successful planting. It will save you time, money, and a lot of disappointment and frustration. Like the song says, follow the sun. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now let's go to the email mailbag. We received an email from Susan in Londonderry, New Hampshire. She writes, With spring fast approaching, I would like to be able to help the birds that nest in my yard. Can you tell me, is it safe to put out things like dog fur so they can use it to make their nests? I have a collie, so I have a ready supply of fur. Susan, thank you so much for contacting Birdhugger. It's a good question. A lot of backyard enthusiasts experience confusion about the best ways to help birds when it comes to nesting time. And there has been a great deal of controversy on social media about what constitutes safe nesting material. Some well-intentioned people have been suggesting the use of cellophane, aluminum foil, strips of plastic, tinsel from Christmas trees, thread, yarn, and fabric scraps like burlap, as well as human hair all of which can be harmful to birds, especially nestlings. Their tiny legs can become caught in these items, preventing them from feeding or flying. In addition, items like dryer lint can contain harmful residues from detergents, bleach, and fabric softeners. Once rained on, lint dries up and separates, impairing the strength of the nest. Let's also, while we're at it, debunk the long-standing myth that cigarette butts are good nesting material, since tobacco repels insects. 
This is, in fact, not the case. Tobacco and the additives placed in cigarettes are poisonous to birds, whether the tobacco is eaten or ingested through the skin. And now to answer your question, Susan. Unfortunately, dog hair can contain flea and tick medication that can cause seizures and neurological effects in exposed birds. Safe nesting materials for birds are those items found naturally in the yard, like sticks, stems, leaves, moss, lichen, spiderwebs, and mud. For example, warblers and orioles use fibers from milkweed stems for their nest weaving, and a number of birds use the downy fluff from milkweed pods to make their nests soft for the hatchlings. By not deadheading last year's milkweed plants, you can certainly give a boost to bird nest construction in your yard. In addition, dead twigs and leaves, dried grass that is fertilizer and pesticide-free, pine needles, and strips of bark, all of these are safe and extremely helpful to the birds. You can greatly help hummingbirds by creating safe places where spiders can spin their webs. Leaving muddy areas in the yard will help robins, phoebes, and barn and cliff swallows who use mud to construct their nests. You can stuff suet feeders full of dried leaves and grass and hang them on trees and fence posts. You know, I talk a lot about brush piles on this show. One of the great benefits of building brush piles in your yard for wildlife is that birds can pull sticks, twigs, and dried grass off the pile and use them to build their nests. So to answer your question, by leaving the leaves in your yard and on the ground and keeping sticks and branches in a brush pile along with a few mud puddles, you will be providing the birds who nest on your property with plenty of building materials. Susan, I hope you are able to take the time to observe your birds and enjoy their nest-making activities. Birds are always fun to watch, no matter what they're doing. And now I'd like to introduce noted ornithologist Dr. Daniel Clem. Dr. Clem has just published a highly informative and helpful book about bird collisions with glass. The book is Solid Air, Invisible Killer, Saving Billions of Birds from Windows, and I recommend it to all of my listeners. Did you know that 44% of all bird collisions with glass occur at your average residence? There are several things all of us can do to help prevent fatal bird strikes at our homes, and Dr. Clem is going to tell us how to do that. Dr. Clem will also tell us about the relatively new and somewhat counterintuitive idea of placing your bird feeder extremely close to your windows to avoid collisions. Dr. Clem, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, you're very welcome, and thank you for the privilege and opportunity to do so. We are very excited to have you here. So what led you to write a book about bird collisions? Well, first of all, that topic was the topic of my doctoral dissertation work. And I began that, I began that program in 1973, but I actually started studying the bird window issue in 1974, January of 1974. And I finished that program in 1979. And frankly, what I had found out and what I had written about in my dissertation work, uh, I really thought the scientific community was going to be sort of bowled over, you know? I mean, I thought they would be fighting to publish my work. It seemed so novel and so different, and it was revealing a, a source, a threat of avian mortality that people really had no clue about. I, I think in the end, you know, what we were dealing with was what other scientists in the past have also dealt with, is that when you are studying something that takes the general authorities by surprise, you know, it's not received very well. So they're skeptical. And, and so it took a while to get people to take the issue seriously. But eventually it did occur. 
And really only within, I would say, honestly, the last 10 years, we've made some very, very good progress. And it's not just me, of course. There are many younger scientists that have been attracted to the topic. And there are many prestigious uh, conservation organizations that are dealing with this issue in common cause. So awareness has increased, not nearly as much as we need. And that was the motive for the book. So the book is, to answer your question, my latest attempt to try to inform and capture a critical mass of the general public so that they in turn can influence developers and they can influence architects and they can influence further conservation-minded people to make our built environment really not just in North America, but around the world, because this threat is universal to birds to make it safe for these animals. We can do that. This is not a very complex issue like climate change. This is a conservation problem that we can solve. We just need the will and we need the action to pull it off. Right. Now, let's talk about numbers. What 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 are the estimates in, in terms of number of birds being killed by glass every year? Well, in the book, I point out very clearly, look, at, we don't want to get in any kind of argument about what is the most threatening human associated mortality for birds. What we want to do is solve all of them as best we can. But scale does matter. And when I published my first estimate of how many birds are killed at windows in 1990 in a a scientific paper, it went from 100 million to a billion. Okay, so if you took even that lowest figure, right, the 100 million annually dying in the United States alone, that's equivalent to 333 Exxon Valdez spills every year. But who's talking about windows, I would say? Nobody. But every time we hear the news and about an environmental disaster and a problem, it's oil. It's oil in the Gulf. It's oil in Alaska. It's oil spills in the heartland of our country. And again, nothing to be taken away from oil. It's very important. We have to solve that issue. But this particular source of avian mortality is insidious. It takes the fittest members of the bird species populations as well as the unfit ones. And it's something, again, we need to address. So the scale matters. And so improving really on my estimate was a group of scientists at the Smithsonian Institution who turned their attention to all the man-caused avian mortality in an objective fashion using highly sophisticated mathematical modeling. And their latest estimate to help us all out was 365 million annually up a couple hundred million from my 100 million and a billion on the upper end, like I had originally predicted. So this particular topic, and it's often been said too, that domestic cats take more, take more birds, again, attrition on our population. And, and I'm, there's, there's no direct objective evidence to say that, you know, cats are extremely important in terms of us having to control them for the amount of avian deaths that occur. But I write in the book, you know, look at, let's use a little common sense, right? Cats are predators, just like all predators. They take the weak members of the population. Uh, They're opportunists, right? But there's no discrimination in the glass. It takes the strongest as well as the weakest. And there's astronomically more panes of glass in the world than there are cats. And so a little common sense and intuition tells us that the windows are likely one of our most principal 
difficult and needing attention sources of avian threat. And so that's the issue. That's what we're trying to impress people about. And we're trying to also tell them that they can be part of the solution. Right. Now, I think the title of your book says it all, Solid Air. Birds do not perceive glass as a solid object. You call a window a deadly illusion of open space. Can you explain why this is? Yeah, I think so. Well, first of all, you know, when I get a chance to talk about this and with audiences and so on, I like to point out that, look at, first of all, we're not them, meaning, you know, we're not birds and we never will be. And we have to rely on other pieces of evidence to try to determine what they're perceiving and how they're responding to it. And we have to further rely as scientists in the breadth of knowledge that's available in biology, we have to rely on physiologists, specifically a visual system physiologists that specialize in birds to tell us what are the accoutrements that these birds have in terms of their eye and their brain, and, and you know what are their ranges of perception. And then secondarily, we have to be, and just as importantly, we have to be attentive to the bird's behavior. How do they behave around these windows? You know, are they able to see some and not others and what have you? And my uh, observations over these, again, last uh, 50 years or so, has indicated repeatedly that birds behave as if the glass is invisible to them. Furthermore, I've been able to conduct experiments where I've asked questions about whether birds can actually tell the difference between literally unobstructed space and a clear pane of glass, and they cannot. And so I put all this evidence together from what the physiologists tell us about, again, the, the, the perceptive abilities of these animals and the behavior of the animals. And, I, I, and I've come to this conclusion that glass, whether it's clear, where habitat and sky and so on can be seen on the other side of a clear pane, or whether it's in a, a reflective image of the face and habitat in the sky as a mirror on the surface of the glass, birds are incapable of telling the difference between that and an actual barrier and actual habitat. And the consequence is they fly in to clear windows trying to reach habitat on the other side, such as occur in atria, such as occur in noise barriers, clear noise barriers along highways, such as occur in railings around buildings, such as occur in linkways or corridors between buildings. Birds are killed often there, but most kills occur at reflective windows. And the reason is that even a clear pane of glass covering a darkened space acts like a mirror on the outside. And this illusion is something that the birds are not able to discern. And so they fly into the trees. I like to tell the story about a colleague of mine who worked at the Smithsonian. He would get off the Metro and he'd walk across the mall and they were building yet another building on the, on the Washington mall. And what he would do, and this was a facade of glass, he would pick up birds randomly that had been killed flying into that reflective glass on his way to his office at the Smithsonian. And then they planted maple trees every 30 feet in front of that facade. And only then and thereafter did he find birds always in front of where the maple trees were. And again, I often joke, you know, like I'm sure a lot of people do, they don't use ornithologists, but they always say, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. Well, the deal is, is that the birds are attracted to the maple trees, the maple trees are reflected into the facade and the bird leaves the maple tree thinking it's landing in another maple tree. Unfortunately, it collides with the glass and often loses its life. Now, you just stated that ironically, it is the some of the birds are the healthiest, strongest and fittest birds that are colliding with windows. What impact over the long term do you feel this will have on the quality of populations? Well, that that, that of course, is the 
most important question of all. And just like so many other complex issues, none of us can really answer that without some speculation. We don't have the detailed quantitative evidence to point out how many birds are dying at glass and what this has done to the structure of their populations in terms of their being able to reproduce more young and sustain themselves in a healthy condition over time. So we're left with conjecture, right? And so this particular issue where the birds behave and what we can determine from their visual systems, that the glass is invisible to them. And it doesn't matter whether it's a very healthy animal. We have records of animals that have traveled on migration, you know, to, to Central and South America and come back again, and then they get killed. But one of my one of the accounts in the book was of an indigo bunting that hit a window in the springtime in Ontario. And it just so happened to be the home of a bird bander, and the bird and the bird was out cold for over half an hour, and a band was placed on the bird. It was released and presumably went on to breed for that season, then traveled to South America during the fall, and then came back in the spring. And one year to the day, the bird hit the very same window and killed itself outright. So I, I think we have the evidence, you know, that indicates that strong, healthy breeders that could sustain populations, they're just as vulnerable as ones that are weak. Now, getting more into your book, can we talk about the methods that we absolutely know do not work and should not be used? That colleague of mine that I told you about, the Smithsonian, I visited him early on when I was starting my studies on the windows. And during my visit, I you know, wandered into the gift shop at the Smithsonian, and I bought myself a bird tie and some other things. And I noticed they had on sale a single hawk silhouette Research from Europe come up with the idea that the shape, the silhouette shape of a hawk would frighten birds. And so telling people to put it in the upper right-hand corner of their windows and angle it so that it looks like it's stooping on prey and it will scare birds away from the windows. And that's one of the very first experiments I conducted. And of course, that silhouette didn't work. And now a series of other experiments after that showed that it wasn't so much the silhouette. You could use diamonds, you could use circles, you could use anything you want. But what I did reveal was that you had to uniformly cover a window and you had to do it such that the elements that made up the pattern uniformly covering the window were separated by two inches if you oriented those patterns horizontally and by four inches if you oriented them vertically. This has often been described by myself and others as the two by four rule. And lately people have said, you know, you got to put that spacing a little tighter, two by two instead of two by four. And the reason for that is because hummingbirds could sometimes get deceived and tried to go through the four inch vertical spacing. So at issue is that there are various ways in which people, homeowners, can use techniques to protect their windows from the birds. And those include a whole host of things that didn't exist all that long ago, but now the decals, there's a group in Toronto called Feather Friendly that sells a decal. There's another covering of a film on the outside called Kaleidoscape that can be bought, you know, from Amazon. And there's a group called Bird Savers, a, a copian bird savers named after the gentleman who came up with this idea of taking paracord like strings and separating them by four inches across the window. So there are techniques, but it takes tolerance, you know, and it takes acceptability of people. When I first started studying this, some very, very famous conservationists looked me right in the eye and said, Dan, you go mucking around with the way I look out of my window and you're going to lose. And what they meant was, is that they're not going to alter 
anything about their windows because they don't want to obstruct their view. But what people have become more tolerant of now is that they realize the magnitude of the, of the deaths that are occurring and they realize that they can be party to the solution. And so using some of these home remedies has been more acceptable and is spreading more widely. I wanted to bring your attention when you'd asked me about the number of deaths. There was, a, again, a colleague, um, Scott Loss, and his students out at Oklahoma State University published a paper, along with other Smithsonian colleagues, pointing out, where's all the killing taking place? Well, it turns out that of that billion birds that die annually, 44% of them die at homes, people's residences, and small commercial buildings, uh, you know, one to three stories. Uh, 56% die at buildings that are from, uh, you know, four to 11 stories high. And less than 1% die at the high rises. And until recently, Whenever we heard about this bird window issue, it came from cities like New York and Toronto and Chicago. But really, those high-rise buildings that have these dramatic kills are just a fraction, a real bit of a spit in the ocean compared to what's dying at our homes. And so that's why it's so very important for people to recognize this. Now, I cannot tell you how many people have said to me, hey, never had a bird hit a window in my house, never even heard of it. Well, in the book, I point out, you know, that bump that's going on uh, around their homes that comes up every periodically that they might become aware of. It's not a ghost. It's likely a bird that has struck a window at their home. And I've never been at somebody's home where I haven't even walked around and found evidence that birds have strength. Another thing that comes to mind while you're asking me about what homeowners could do is that it, this might sound a little counterintuitive, but one of the experiments I also conducted was to ask the question, where can we place our bird feeders so they don't become complicit in creating more carnage at our homes? And the answer to that is within three feet of the glass surface of your window. And the reason it's counterintuitive is because you're bringing the feeder closer to the glass. But if you go just one meter, a little over three feet away from the surface of that window, a bird like the size of a junco or a sparrow can build up enough momentum to kill itself outright flying into that window, but closer, Birds come and go to the feeder, and even if they glance up against the glass, they don't hit with enough momentum to harm themselves. And another thing that needs clarifying about this is that some popular writers have you know, read my research papers and said, Clem says it's okay for you to place your feeder within three feet of the glass or greater than 30 feet away from the glass. And that latter part is, not, is an error. The only reason that 30 feet comes up is that in that particular experiment, in that particular scientific paper that I published, I stopped at 30 feet placing a feeder simply because I didn't think people would have placed their feeders at 30 feet because it would hard for them to see the animals that they're trying to attract and enjoy. But any feeder that brings birds into an area where glass is found near your home guides them to that danger zone, which I typically describe as within 10 meters within that 30 feet area of, a, of the surface of the window is going to be a potential lethal threat to these animals. So placing feeders close to the windows, and again, you see the birds better right up front, and using some of these applications on the windows for homes will do a lot to protect the animals that we care so much about. Now you do go into quite a bit of detail in your book about the deterrence that work to keep birds away from windows. Could you share with our listeners your top three that you like the best? Well, you know, one thing I like to say is, first of all, if you have characteristic mosquito netting, you know, screening, 
that's on your windows. You should leave them up year round because they'll protect the birds from striking your window. And if you don't do that, then you need to apply something to the window. And I think, again, either these paracord strings that if they're if you're tolerant enough to accept them, have found that they're very cheap to make, they're easy to install, and they work effectively. And so when I was giving a talk in Maine one time, I remember the people at the university there were saying to me that we have people that live in the country and they know about this window issue, but they feel all the solutions like buying these tapes and so on is a little bit beyond them in terms of price. And that's when I said, well, you know, these paracord things, they can make themselves and put them up. And it's it's really, really, really quite cheap. And I think, again, the decals that you can get now in tape make it easy. Many, many of my colleagues and, and people that I that I know have been purchasing this. Another group that has done this too is the Detroit Zoological Society. There's been some staff out there, the director of that zoo in Michigan, I've been there a few times now. Um, They've taken this issue of the bird window collision very seriously. They have signage throughout the zoo. And in their gift shop, they have these tapes that you can buy from this feather friendly that's applicable, easily placed on your windows and easily taken off. Another another technique, although I wouldn't rate it as one of my top three, is that many institutions, especially schools, have taken to using tempera paints, you know, to make designs on their windows that are attractive and give the students something to do and introduce them to the cause and how they're saving bird lives. And, and that's worked well, too. So I, I think these these decals, right, and these paracord And of course, this mosquito netting, those would be some of the main helpful deterrent techniques. Great. So basically anything that breaks up the reflection so that the bird doesn't mistake the glass for the sky and trees being reflected behind him. Yes. Well, of course. But here again, it's very important that the elements that make up the patterning You know, make sure that they cover uniformly the entire window, number one. And number two, make sure that the elements, whether they be dots or spots or lines or whatever they might be, that they're separated by four inches if the the elements are going to be oriented vertically and two inches minimally if horizontally. Right. That spacing is very important. When I say that decals and tapes, what happens is, is that there's a roll, right, of, say, circles or dots. And... You just take this roll and you're able to peel off the dots and and, and orient them on the window in uh, such that the spacing is two by two or, or two by four. So it's a really easy on and easy off taking them away if you don't find that it's needed anymore. And by the way, it's not really a requirement that you have a big picture window. You know, my studies over all these years have shown that a tiny little pane like occurs in many garage windows is just as lethal as an entire building covered with glass. They're both lethal. It's just a matter of how that glass is perceived by that bird and whether the bird can be deceived by it, thinking it's trying to get through to habitat on the other side of a clear pane or flying to habitat that's an illusion reflected in the surface. And this is another important issue though, right? Architects number the surfaces of windows from the outside inward. So if you have a multi-pane insulating window in your house, 
The outside surface is surface number one. The window pane on the inside of that is surface number two. And then if you have another pane, which typically does in multi-pane windows, three and four and five and six and so on. And so it's unbelievably important that these patterns, these decals or these strings, that they're applied over surface number one on the outside. Because if you try to apply them on the inside, with the exception of see-through effects, the reflection on the outside mirroring the facing habitat and sky and surface number one hides anything that you put on the inside to help protect the birds. So if you have a corridor between two buildings, you can get away with putting those decals or those strings on the inside as well as on the outside. But for most installations, as I said earlier, even a perfectly clear pane of glass covering a dark room will act like a mirror on the outside. And most windows provide this reflective illusion. And most deaths, most window collisions occur at these reflective windows. And it's that surface one that has to be treated that's so very important. One of the very earliest attempts to try to prevent birds from being killed was at the Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago. And what they did, and, and I learned about this from a newspaper article in the, in, the, in, the, in the mid 1970s, is that they would take this wash that typically is used you know, in uh, greenhouses. And you know, to try to mitigate the intensity of the sun, you know, they would put these chalky washes on the windows. And that's what they did at the Lincoln Park Zoo. They put this chalky wash on their windows during migratory periods. Because of course they weren't concerned about the birds that were in the zoo, they were concerned about the birds that passed through the zoo on their passage north and south during migratory periods. And they were the ones that were being killed. I'm, I was always, I'd written about Chicago for a long, long time. And it took until 2005 before I actually got an invitation to go out there and see it for myself. And what struck me and my hosts who were showing me around the city was that the birds that were being killed downtown were brown creepers and a whole host of Lincoln sparrows. Now in the East, we get brown creepers, of course, and we get Lincoln sparrows, but they're, they're really pretty rare here. And, and they're always a great find, but out there, they were piled up in front of the windows in downtown Chicago and along the lake shore where there's this famous convention center called McCormick Place that, that kills sometimes 200 birds a day. It was just remarkable to me. And in the book, I try to point out, we should value, if, if nobody, if you're not gonna uh, protect the birds from your windows, and if you know commercial buildings in your area that you find dead birds from, collecting these specimens and offering them to a museum is valuable information for us to learn about their biology and learn about them. And one of the things I point out is, is that uh, if you pay attention to window kills on migration, you can offer data information on migratory passage routes for select species. We spend a lot of money as a government uh, giving the authorization. I'm a bird bander, and we give authorization. We give them these aluminum bands. We put them on birds and capture them in nets and send them on their way. But the return on those bands of all the millions that have been put on birds is something like four to six percent. It's really, really small. But if you paid attention to who was being killed where and windows, it would give you an indication, just like those brown creeper, creepers and Lincoln sparrows move through the Chicago Midwest area far greater than they do in the East. And that tells us there's a, there's a window kill in the book too that I describe a hummingbird that was killed in San Salvador in the country of El Salvador. It was the very first record. So just paying attention 
to who's being killed where will help us advance our knowledge about the biology. Another little account in the book I have regarding paying attention to those animals that lose their lives and having them be of value to us and learning about the natural history of select species is that historically, maybe your listeners didn't know this, but it was it took a long time to figure out where the non-breeding areas of Kirtland's warbler, one of our endangered species in Upper Michigan, spends its non-breeding season. Well, it, it, it ended up that windows had nothing to do with this, but they were discovered in the Bahamas. That's where they spend their non-breeding season. But I have a records of Kirtland's warbler flying into windows in Ohio, right? And so if you took a straight edge from their known restricted breeding grounds in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and you ran it through this home that killed two, at least, Kirtland's warblers at their picture windows, it goes right to the Bahamas. And so here again, it's just an example that I try to use that if we pay attention and value the dead in a way that will help us save the living a little bit better because of our management practices or protection areas, these animals and these specimens can lend themselves to help us do that. I'm sure your listeners don't have to be convinced about this, but birds have such an enriching contribution and gift to our lives as humans, from symbols, you know, to measuring the health of the environment, to aesthetic appreciation, and they're just extravagant beauty, that if we have as stewards of this planet, because we've forced ourselves into that role, we have this obligation to protect them. You know, these birds, they just don't have any voice, right? I mean, they can't speak for themselves. They have to rely on us to speak for them. Thank you to Dr. Clem for joining us today. You can order his new book, Solid Air, Invisible Killer, Saving Billions of Birds from Windows, by going to Hancock House Publishers at HancockHouse.com or DanielClemJr.org. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.